and welcome to The Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got David B. Horn with me. Now, David is a very interesting creature. He's a CFO who has actually written a book. David, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, David, I think a good place to start off would be, how does a CFO come to write a book? <laughs> well, um... Yeah, how does a CFO come to write a book? I think it came about probably six or seven years after I stopped being a sort of full-time CFO in, in, in corporate world. I had, I had been the CFO of a couple of aim-listed businesses. And in 2010, I, I left that world and set up on my own initially as a portfolio CFO for SME companies. And, and it sort of gradually morphed from there. And um, in 2015, I did a business development program. Um, and one of the things that was very strongly recommended coming out of that was to write a book. And I thought, wow, that sounds really cool, but I'm not sure what I'd write about. And then I sat down with the, the, the guy who ran the program and we talked about what my background was and what I did. And he said, well, this is where I think you should focus. And it was, it was really quite something because um, this chap talks about what he calls your mountain of value. And he says, you know, when you're standing on a mountain of value, you can't see it. You can see everything around you, but you don't see the value of what you're standing on. And he said, you know, you, you kind of take for granted the fact that you've raised a lot of money and bought and sold a lot of companies, but a lot of people have never even conceived of doing that. And this is something that you could share with them. And I sort of let that, you know, distill around in the back of my brain for a couple of years. And, and then um, at the beginning of 2019, I came to the end of a uh, long-term contract that I'd been doing with a particular client and all of a sudden found myself with time on my hands. And I thought, okay, I've been talking about writing a book for a long time. I've now been given the time to do it. Um, and so I sat down in January of 2019 and wrote like mad for about three and a half, four months. Um, some days the writing was painful to get a hundred words on paper. And some days it just flowed through me. And I think my best day I wrote 6,000 words. Um, and um, then, yeah, the book came out in July of last year. Um, it went to number one on Amazon, which was very cool. And then in March of this year, it, um, it won the business self-development category at the Business Book Awards. So the whole experience has been um, exciting, fun, uh, very rewarding. And it's really, really cool when people reach out to you and say, oh, I read your book and I learned this and, and, and it's really helped. I think, I think that's probably the most satisfying thing that's come from it. That is fantastic, David. Uh, the book is called Add Then Multiply, and we put a link to it in the show notes. But can you summarize in a few words who the book is for what you'd get out of it yeah so the book is primarily targeted for entrepreneurial business owners so founders of companies who are looking to scale their businesses through um, raising capital and buying other companies so i've i've created a methodology called face uh, which stands for fund acquire consolidate and exit um, however, this book will be very relevant to anyone in the CFO community who's in an organization that's looking at doing uh, growth through acquisitions, whether that's private or public. Um, and, you know, because it, it sits down, so it's, it sets out 
the core methods and principles and different stages of how you go through fundraising and what are the key steps of doing an acquisition and you know what are the hard things that need to be done when you're in the consolidation stage where you're putting companies together because that's a, a lot of really challenging work and finally you know what are the things that you need to do to prepare for an exit of the business and and you know there could be there could be listeners on this show who are involved in one or more of those things um, I remember years ago when I was in, in my first uh, M&A role and I, I met the uh, CFO of a company that we had bought and he had been specifically brought in by the founders to help them prepare the business for sale. Um, so, you know, something like that could be, could be useful. So it might be that, you know, one of your listeners is, has been engaged by someone who's running a business and they're thinking, well, I want to sell it. So let's get it all, you know, in the right kind of shape. So the book will set out what they, you know, a lot of the things in terms of what they need to prepare. That, that's brilliant, David, because I, I know that a lot of our listeners are at that first time CFO end of the spectrum. Yep. Um, I don't know. That seems a long time ago for you and for me. <laughs> yeah. That think, thinking back to that, that sort of stage, David, what, what sort of challenges do you remember having? It's really interesting because actually um, <laughs> it, it goes back to that same company where I was, where I met that CFO who'd been brought in. So I was, I had been appointed as the CFO of a, uh, very acquisitive PR agency group. And um, we had a brief from our parent company to, uh, to, to, to grow the agency network by acquisition. Uh, we had our parent company's checkbook, so it was a lot of fun. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, up until then I'd been in sort of financial controller or business planning or those kinds of roles where, you know, I, I had someone above me who was the representative of finance on the top team. And I think, I think for me, at least the, the, the biggest challenge was, you know, all of a sudden I'd, I'd sort of made it to the top of the pile in the, in the finance function. Um, and I was sitting around an executive leadership team with others who had made it to the top of the pile in their respective functions. And the importance of building relationships with those other people who are around the table is absolutely critical because you're, you're working with people over whom you have no hierarchical authority, but you need to get them on board with things that you are doing and you need to work closely with them. So when you're getting into things like annual planning cycles and running budgets and stuff like that, you know, you can, you can, as I did initially, you know, you can sort of take the hard line and say, oh, well, no, you can't do that. Or you can sit down and, and, and really try and collaborate with them. And I remember, I remember partway through the, um, the first budget cycle when I was the CFO at that business and uh, my boss, who was the chairman, um, had a quiet word with me and suggested that my attitude with one or two of my colleagues on our exec team might need to change a little bit and um you know he pointed that out and i stopped and thought about it and 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 then actually reached out to those people and said hey look i'm sorry i've you know i've been a bit of a dick um can i take you out for lunch and and you know let's kind of uh, start fresh and that was one of the cleverest pieces of advice that i have ever been given and you know I, even today sometimes if something goes wrong 
I've, I've learned that there's no harm in reaching out to someone and apologizing for behaving badly. And, you know, perhaps in COVID times, taking them out for lunch is a little bit difficult, but, um, you know, reach out to them and, and, and have a virtual coffee or have a virtual, you know, have a discussion online, but just open up and say, look, I'm sorry, I was a dick. Um, and, and, you know, how can we set the record straight and how can we work together? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're all in this together. We're all, we're all trying to achieve the best for the, for the company. And, and, you know, it was really interesting because as a result of doing that, people started to open up to me. And instead of it being a, a sort of a, you know, th th there's this kind of stereotypical thing of the, the, the CFO who's got the word no tattooed across his forehead or her forehead. And I learned ways to, to get people to open up so that we could, we could explore things. And, and all of a sudden it became a case of, and I remember this in one particular division in this, in this PR agency where the leader of this division really wanted something. And I ended up working with her to craft the case why it was important. And although it wasn't something that had been initially set out in the budget, we put together the business case and that demonstrated it. And we got that funding signed off. Um, and that was 20 years ago. And that, that person has since gone on and, and now runs a very, very successful business. And she and I have a, an outstanding relationship. And I've, I've been called in to do bits and pieces of work for her in her company. Um, and she's been supporting me and some of my other initiatives and things. So, you know, you, you, you might be early on in your career, but you never know who you're going to influence or, or, or uh, get knock into and, 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 and have a relationship with that 20 years down the line. Um, wouldn't you far rather have a great, have had a great relationship than had, have had an, uh, a difficult one because the difference is just fantastic. Yeah, and I, I can echo that. And I, I'd, I'd say never neglect any relationship because my experience is it's the, the relationships that you never thought were important that end up being the big ones. And the ones that you thought were important and perhaps put more, more than enough effort into didn't mean anything in the long term. So exactly. never, ever neglect a relationship with anyone. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, it's so many people when they when they talk about networking and the benefits of networking, it's it's not the benefits from your first degree network. It's it's who can your first degree network introduce you to. Um, and, you know, so so if I have a relationship with 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 person X and um they know someone that I want to get in touch with. Well, if I've got a good relationship with, I can get an introduction to them or they might even just introduce me out of the blue. They might say, Hey, I was talking to someone and, and, and they were saying, Oh, I'm looking at this problem. And, and, and in my head, Oh, well, you know, David would be exactly the right person. Hang on. I'll introduce you. And if you yeah. hadn't had that relationship, it wouldn't happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Networking is, is definitely about that long game. And, Thinking about that as well, David, you and I are sitting here this morning recording this podcast. One of the reasons we're doing that is that we we met on LinkedIn and we recorded a previous podcast, which went we very did. well for, for my, my other show, The Next 100 Days. Yeah. And curious enough, networking through there, I met again on LinkedIn, a guy called Dan Wells. After a couple of conversations, Dan came on The Next 100 Days as a guest. Dan and I are now working in Gross CFO as business partners. Yeah. You never ever know exactly. where these relationships no, are exactly. go. Exactly. Yeah. My 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 biggest client right now is a is a Swiss technology company. Um, 
I, I, I lived in Switzerland 30 years ago uh, when I was still in the accounting profession with, with, with well, Price Waterhouse back then, PwC. Um, and um, <clears throat> I was <clears throat> invited back to Switzerland to speak at an event and I met this chap and uh, we got involved with a, with a, a potential business that sadly didn't go anywhere, but um, we'd, we'd had a, developed a good relationship. And 18 months later, out of the blue, he contacted me and said, oh, well, I've now, I'm, I'm now working with this other technology company in Switzerland. And the founder said to me that we need to raise some capital. And, and I said to him, oh, well, I know exactly who, the, who you should meet. And we had a couple of Zoom calls and I flew over to Zurich and, and met with them. And I've been working as the CFO of this company on a part-time basis since January. And I, I believe you're, you're actually in the middle of trying to raise some funds at the moment. I am. What, what's the market like at the moment? It's difficult. Um, the money's still out there. You know, the funds, the funds that have raised money and are looking to invest have money. Um, so it's not like the, the money's dried up, but they are being a lot stricter. Um, they are being more challenging on valuations. They are uh, really staying very, very strictly focused on these are the parameters under which we invest and, and they're not branching outside of that. You know, when, when, when things are booming and there's lots of competition in the marketplace, um, when a good deal comes along, a fund might look at it and say, well, it's not 100% fit with what we're doing, but we can see how we can justify it so that our investor limited partners aren't going to be upset that we're investing in the wrong stuff. But right now they're just, they're really holding tight to the line. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure they're under a lot of pressure from their LPs as well in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on in the markets. What are you investing in? Um, there's no question that valuations are coming under pressure. You know, you, you, you look at what's happened to, to global stock markets over the, over the COVID crisis and, 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 you know, the collapse in those kind of prices, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the businesses. You know, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy. It's just that for a three month period earlier this year, it, it just kind of stopped. And, and, you know, here we are in October and, and um, bits and pieces of the economy are stopping again. Uh, not, not necessarily because the local people want it to happen, but uh, uh, you know, there's there's been all this business in the press now about you know battles between Andy Burnham and Boris Johnson and and all that. Um, but no, it's you know the, the economy itself is fundamentally okay, but but we're 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 faced with this virus that is causing businesses and and economies and societies to shut down. You know, hopefully temporarily. Um, yeah, I've never seen anything like this before. I've I've lived through seven major global recessions um and you know they've always been caused by greed or or something along those lines or or natural disaster well i guess you could argue that this is natural disaster but you know uh, none, none of them have been caused by the fact that lots of people are dying and that that they're very very strange times and certainly don't start me on that one of politicians arguing <laughs> It's now become just a bizarre point scoring battle when we should actually all be working together in the best interest of the country. And exactly. It's annoying me no end. Exactly. But I, it's I, not yeah. just a UK, it's not just the UK that's got that problem. Yeah. yeah. It's all over the world. Yeah. But I, I get the impression, and a couple of weeks ago I was talking to Andrew Waters, who's in the recruitment market, and his business pretty much crashed for three months at the beginning of the year. He's found that 
it's bounced back. The vacancies that they were talking about back in that time have come back and they're probably at the moment busier than ever playing catch up. Yeah. I, I got a little bit of that impression around some of the some of the funding organizations that they'd, they'd had a period of the year where funds were available but they couldn't get the deals done because of covid and there's a, there's a bit of catch up to be played yeah yeah i think that that's that's a distinct possibility um as as i said you know the 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 investors who've raised funds are sitting on money, they have it, um, but they are being very cautious in terms of what they are investing. Um, there were some statistics came out recently from uh, PitchBook, which is a big uh, organization in the US that tracks all the VC deals, particularly in North America. Um, and they're seeing, you know, deal volumes, De- deals are still happening, but deal volumes are, are, are slowing down a little bit. Uh, what was really interesting, though, and this links into one of my other areas that I'm working on, is that the value of deals that went to female founders uh, for the first time in three years fell uh, in the third quarter of this year and is actually back to the level it was at in 2017. Now, that is a great shame. Now, David, I know that is a huge, huge passion of yours. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> this is one of those. This is one of those. You know how sometimes in life you all you you just sort of you all of a sudden stumble across something and you think, "Hang on a minute, that's not right." And and this was one of those things for me. So I was I was speaking at an event in April of last year um, at, uh, at at this event for SME business owners, and I was speaking about raising funding. And after the event, a woman came up to me and said, why does so little funding go to female entrepreneurs? And I said, I have no idea, but I'll find out. And I started doing some research and following up, <laughs> following up on networking. I had met someone at a networking event at the IOD um, who is now the chief executive of the British Business Bank. And uh, she and I had a, a follow-up meeting um, not long after I'd been speaking at this event. And um, I was asking her during the meeting if she knew anything about this issue of venture capital funding and female entrepreneurs. And she smiled and pulled a research report out of her desk that the British Business Bank had produced called UKVC and Female Founders. And it was shocking, Kevin. Um, they, the, the, this was a full-scale research report that the UK government had commissioned the bank to produce. And they looked at all of the venture capital deals in the UK in 2017. And out of every pound invested by venture capitalists, less than a penny went to all female founding teams. And only 10% went to mixed gender teams. Now, some people initials, their initial response is, well, how many, you know, how many decks did they submit? And was it just that, that women and, and, and mixed gender teams didn't submit? But that's not the case. So female founding teams submitted 5% of the pitch decks and got 1% of the money. Uh, mixed gender teams submitted 20% of the decks and got 10% of the money. And all male teams submitted 75% of the decks and got 89% of the money. That is, that is just shockingly wrong. And yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of our own gross CFO management team. And we, we started off and yes, initially it was an all male team. Now we're, we're working now with Catherine and the, the, the difference in, approach attitude and so on that 
Catherine brings is just fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't think about going into a major launch without that kind of balance. It's invaluable. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. Those those numbers are definitely shocking. Yeah, no, they are. They really are. And um and 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 it's interesting. So I I, I ended up putting on an event at the London Stock Exchange in November of last year. Uh, called Funding Focus. Um, and uh, if you want to put it into the show notes, the website is funding-focus.com. Um, we're running another event this year. It'll be an online event because of COVID, uh, also on the 25th of, of November. Um, and coming out of the event from last year, uh, in addition to it having been a really interesting thing, I mean, we filled the theater at the London Stock Exchange with over 100 people who had come along to to, to, to hear what, what we were talking about and to hear stories from women who'd successfully raised funding. But there were two key learnings for me that came out of that. Um, one was that this is not just a UK problem, it's a global problem. And in the social media that we had around the issue last year uh, or around the, the event last year, we had comments from people from 10 countries around the world, um, Australia, Belgium, Canada, China, France, Germany, Ireland, South Africa, Switzerland and the United States, all saying that this was a big issue for them. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting was there were a number of uh, men who came from diverse backgrounds, so not white men, basically. Uh, and uh, they faced the same uneven playing field. And so I've been doing more research on this and, and, and it's shocking um, people who come from uh, ethnic minorities or other diverse backgrounds, whether that's sexual orientation or, you know, all manner of, of, of diverse backgrounds face the same uneven playing field. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the focus for the event this year. Um, and and uh, we're going to be doing it online. And I've got a number of, of speakers uh, from the UK, from Europe, from North America, uh, both men and women um, uh, covering ethnic minorities um, and, and just, you know, trying to figure out what we can do about this. I'm also working on getting a number of investors to come on board. And there are some investors that are much more focused on this. There are a few investment funds that have been specifically set up to address either female founders or different ethnic categories. Um, I'm sorry, not, not categories, excuse me, just different, different ethnicities. So I know that there's a, there's a fund that, that specifically invests in BAME entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of groundswell happening around this area. And I'm, I'm doing what I can to keep that groundswell going. I did a TEDx talk two weeks ago um, called The Fight for Fairer Funding. I'm hopeful that that'll be out in probably December time. Um, and then I'll be promoting that. Um, I'm writing a, my second book, uh, which will also be called The Fight for Fairer Funding. And um, yeah, just working on, on raising awareness and, and, and trying to get more involved in this. I'm, I'm trying to get connections into governments. I'm, I've networked into um, one of the all-party parliamentary groups that's on entrepreneurship and inclusion. Um, and I've been in discussions with the, uh, the lady who runs the secretariat for that about how I can help her to, to, to really push some of the agenda items forward. So yeah, no, it's a... Uh, it's an area that I'm, I'm very committed to. Um, and uh, it kind of links back to um, 
a few years ago when I came across the UN Global Goals and I, I looked at them and did a lot of research into them and, and I actually came to the view that the two UN Global Goals that I wanted to support the most were, were quality education and gender equality. And so that's, yeah, that's how I ended up uh, being the founder of Funding Focus. That, that is absolutely fantastic. What, what do you think the root cause is sitting behind those, those unequal numbers? Based on the discussions that I've had so far, I think a large element of it is down to cognitive bias. And when you look at the investor community, the vast majority of the investors are white men. Um, there was a research paper came out last autumn from Morningstar that looked at all of the listed open-ended investment companies in the UK. There were 1,496 of them. And that report uh, noted that 108 funds were run by men named David, which I thought was kind of cool at first as a man named David. Uh, and then you read further into the report and only 105 funds are run by women. So you've got more Davids than women running funds. And, and this, this kind of statistic is, is all over the place. I, I, I saw something recently in, in Switzerland where there's, there's less open reporting about, about privately held companies, but uh, companies that employ 50 or more people have to disclose certain things. And someone had done a, a research paper on the first names of the main board directors of these Swiss companies that employed more than uh, 50 people. And there were something like 80 male names ahead of, uh, you know, in, 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 in declining order of the, the most common names working their way down. There was, I can't remember the exact number. I think it was 80 something. Um, and, and the first female name um, was a Barbara. Uh, so there are more female, there are more women named Barbara as directors of companies in Switzerland, but, but, you know, there's vast, vast swathes of, of, of more men who are directors of companies. And uh, a similar report came out recently um, in Germany that said in Germany, the number of women who were directors of listed companies had fallen this year. And I just, that's bizarre, but it's, yeah. it's falling. It's going the wrong direction. Yeah. 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 And I, I really get this cognitive bias idea. It's interesting on the, the next 100 days podcast. And a couple of years ago, we had a, a guest on who was, uh, who used to be head of innovation in Disney. He was okay. the man responsible for putting uh, Buzz Lightyear on, onto the international space station. <laughs> and we had a fantastic chat with him. Uh, is that Duncan? Yes. Duncan Wardle. It is, it is, yes. He was at and, the, he was one of the speakers at the TEDx event that I spoke at. Yeah, what, one of the things that Duncan said was, look, if you really want innovation in your organization, do not recruit people like yourselves. No? Exactly. Your cognitive bias will automatically take you to recruit somebody who is similar to you, interested in the same things, from the same background, so on. No, 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 no. What you need if you really want to move the organization forward and get some different ideas is bring in somebody with a completely different background. Exactly. And he gave us a great example of the way they, they brought into the innovation team, a lady who was simply operating the call center and was talking to customers every day. 
yeah. it was completely the opposite to, to anybody else on the team. Yeah. And they came up with some great new ideas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And cognitive bias is just getting in the way of far too much. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. No, I, one, of, one of the people I'm interviewing for my book is a, is a professor of cognitive bias at one of the leading universities in the UK. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I'm really looking forward to that book. I've got, uh, I've got Ad Then Multiply sitting on the desk next to me, which uh, I've got to say thank you very much for again, David, since it's my a pleasure. copy from the last time we spoke. My and pleasure. again, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. There'll be a link to the, the session you're doing in a couple of months' time in the show notes. David, that has been absolutely fantastic this morning. Thank you very, very much for that. My pleasure, Kevin.